Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about The Great Stink, which... Uh, which was an event that took place, uh, oh geez, a few, just a few hours ago, actually, when I got up this morning, got out of bed and uh, went to have a big, sh- uh, 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 no, sorry, oops, that was a, uh, <clears throat> that was a different great stink, actually, the one that we're, sorry, the, sorry about that, the one that we're going to talk about today um, uh, actually took place uh, took place in London in, in the mid-19th century rather than, you know, a couple of hours ago in, in my bathroom. Anyway, uh, so yes, in the mid-19th century in London, the River Thames was, uh, it was little more basically than an open sewer. Um, and in the summer of 1858, a heatwave hit London, a heatwave that was so severe that it caused much of the Thames to dry up, or rather, the part of it that was water to dry up, which back then wasn't all that much. And when the water dried up, it left behind the most disgustingly malodorous effluvium you can possibly imagine. And uh, look, this was by no means new. I mean, parts of London had been, you know, Pretty bloody gross for a long time due to the lack of proper sewerage. But in 1858, it was worse than it had ever been, ever before. Um, Now, obviously, I was more than happy to get across this story just because, you know, it's mainly about poo-poo and disgusting disgusting things like that. You know, more than enough reason for for an episode of Half Us History. But there's actually a lot more going on with this story than meets the eye. Not only was there a bunch of very interesting and, and very inventive engineering done, the Great Stink and its effects also taught us a lot about disease, health, and the field of medicine. And on top of that, the political side of it is absolutely fascinating, especially when you start to find out about what actually had to take place for the government to really start to take action on uh, on the you know the, the the public health crisis in London in the uh, in in the mid nineteenth century. So while the crux of this episode is you know definitely mainly about great big piles of turds stinking up London, you know, the content you crave, the, you know, the dirty squirties, mate. I know what that, I know, I know that's what you're here for. Um, we still can dress it up as, you know, a highbrow history podcast here by, uh, by talking about, you know, the feats of engineering and the medical advance that came with people, you know, murdering brown snakes like this. And uh, before we begin, before we get stuck in properly, uh, a massive thanks to longtime fan and supporter of the show, Bart, v- oh dear, <clears throat> Bart, Bart Van Gelove. Gluver. I Bel, Belgians, man. Uh, anyway, Bart suggested this brilliant topic and gave me another opportunity to uh, to talk about busting grumpies on this very serious history podcast. So, cheers, Bart, old mate. Good on you. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. I'm sure as soon as soon as he submitted this idea, he knew it was going to be a cracker. So, thanks very much, Bart, mate. Anyway, let's get to it. Let's have a chat about uh, what went on in the summer of 1858, and of course, get across all of the gloriously gross details of the Great Stink before talking about <laughs> before talking about its legacy, I suppose. Anyway, so we go all the way back, all the way back to the 1850s here to Victorian London, uh, which was not in a good way, let me tell you this. London's sewer system, which is actually quite a generous way of describing it back then, um, its sewer system means that the city is a crowded and stinking mess. Much of the sewerage um, uh, is is literally medieval, right? I'm, I'm talking like wooden pipes, cesspits, outfalls, depositing foul-smelling effluent directly into waterways like the Thames. Like it is very, very backwards and old-fashioned. Or, or in some cases, 
they just covered over smaller existing waterways and turned them into what, for want of a better term, became a natural sewer. I mean, you know, just just a small river would have basically a roof built over it, out of sight, out of mind, or maybe out of smell, out of mind in this situation. But that, that was, you know, as I say, quite a medieval approach to dealing with all this sewage here. And the problem is more and more sewage, more waste is being created than ever before. London's population population is surging at this time. Millions of new people are moving there and calling the city home. Uh, on top of that, the flushing toilet is starting to catch on, meaning that people are busting grumpies with civility and comfort uh, uh, before flushing them uh, away, often straight into the River Thames. And the river uh, was, as I mentioned, it was basically just an open sewer. It was raw, uh, you know, raw, untreated human waste was dumped straight into the river um, and it stank. It stank like a, well, I mean, stank like a sewer because that's basically what it was. And uh, on top of this, it wasn't just human waste either. It was industrial waste. It was waste from slaughterhouses. Uh, Everything was being flushed straight into the river. And so the Thames became a honking putrid morass, uh, one that was, don't forget, right in the middle of what was more or less the largest city on the face of the planet. So it really was sort of a, a microcosm of the whole. All of London is stinking and, and, and horrible, and the Thames is the worst of the entire city. And, um, you know, as I say, the rest of the city was suffering. Uh, the effluent that didn't get dumped in the river ended up in cesspits, uh, and these cesspits often had methane emanating from them, and this methane would rather more often than you'd like, catch fire and explode. And this sometimes killed people. Uh, the resulting blasts could be, you know, quite quite devastating. Um, and, and, you know, usually, of course, these cesspits, you'll be unsurprised to learn, they were found in the poorer areas of London. Obviously, you can't have, you know, great big foul stinking pits in the nice areas, can you? So it was the poor who were disproportionately affected by this, uh, by this public health crisis. So we, we, you know, to the surprise of no one, I'm sure your jaw didn't hit the floor after hearing that one. But that isn't all. That's disproportionately uh, disproportionately affecting the poor. It's not just you know the the cesspits and the sewage and whatever else. Cholera. There were cholera outbreaks. They were alarmingly common in London at this time, and they claimed the life of th- the lives of thousands. Um, and again, most of these people were the ones living in poverty. And here's where the medical side of this story comes into it. Um, the prevailing thought at the time, you know, if we go back to the 1850s or, or beforehand. The prevailing thought at the time was the miasma theory of disease transmission. Now, we've talked on the podcast previously. You can go back and listen to the episode about old, old mate Ignaz Zimmelweis, right, uh, who more or less discovered the, the benefits of hand washing. This is well before his time. And so people at this point um, still believe in this miasma theory, which holds that diseases like cholera were the result of miasma or bad air, that the that all that it took to, to catch a disease like miasma was to breathe in foul, stinking, putrid air. Now, obviously, you know, this, this theory has been pretty robustly discredited, even though it may make a level of intuitive sense that, you know, being around stinking, smelling stuff can't be good for you. And it certainly didn't help, right? But uh, it certainly wasn't the cause of diseases like cholera. And the people going around believing that, you know, breathing in the stench of cesspits or open sewers, whatever else was enough to get you sick, they had it wrong. Kind of helped, of course. But today, we know that the uh, miasma theory is absolute nonsense. And, you know, it's not, it wasn't just because of, of the, the ideas that it had about disease transmission. The miasma theory also held that you could get fat by smelling food, which is obviously nonsense. So we're well shot of it. Anyway. Interestingly enough, the miasma theory actually made the situation with the Thames a lot worse because believing that the smell was causing all the sickness, right, 
all the London sewers were regularly flushed out by the by the authorities into the river because they believed that you know if people were were stinking the were smelling the stink from the sewer, if that was washed out into the Thames more regularly, fewer people would get sick. Now, obviously, washing out the sewers is, is going to help people, even if it's just coping with the bad smell. But it certainly didn't help the state of the river, which already was in a terrible uh, terrible situation, and and it only got worse. Uh, thanks to the fact that they were, you know, so assiduously flushing extra waste into it uh, very regularly. Um, so more sewage is empty- ending up in the Thames, not fixing the problem, just concentrating it in what was the city's main waterway. And even, you know, despite their best efforts to, to clean out these or flush out these sewers, people are still getting cholera. These horrific cholera outbreaks are still claiming the lives of thousands, uh, tens of thousands. And it's all being attributed to the foul London air. Now, not everyone believed this, luckily. Not everyone uh, was on board with miasma theory. Famously, a physician whose name was John Snow, he did know something, uh, as he proposed that it wasn't the foul air that caused cholera, but instead the foul water. Now, this bloke was very clever. John Snow, very clever bloke indeed. He was instrumental in the development of anesthesia, um, as well as formulating some some prescient theories about waterborne disease transmission. And that's what we're going to talk about here with this bloke, because Snow was convinced that water contaminated with sewage was responsible for London's cholera outbreaks, not the miasma, not the, not the foul air that people were breathing. And he was convinced that cholera was a waterborne disease. And after an outbreak in 1854... He did some very, very thorough investigation as to the cause of the outbreak, what was actually behind it. He compiled statistics. He drew maps that sort of outlined where the cases had uh, had broken out. And, 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 you know, I guess it was a, a very rudimentary kind of track and trace type thing that he was doing back then. And he monitored the spread of the disease and finally discovered that it was that the, the entire cholera outbreak could be traced back to a single water pump on Broadwick Street in Soho. He considered this to be the cause of the entire outbreak, and luckily he was able to convince the local government to remove the handle from the pump. And sure enough, once the water, pa- uh, water pump's handle was removed, the cholera cases began to decline very swiftly. Although, in fairness, they were already going down, um, but there, you know, there, there was a very good reason for the fact that removing the water pump from the equation actually helped uh, the drop in cases because the pump brought up water from a well that had been dug under a metre away from a nearby cesspit. And so bacteria had leaked from the cesspit into the well and poisoned thousands. Now, Snow's vigorous investigation uh, was one of the first significant events in the science of epidemiology. Epi- epi- epidemiology? I don't know how to say it. I should have had a run-up on that. Epidemiology. Epidemiology. Whatever, that thing. The study of disease transmissions within populations. You know what I'm talking about, right? But his work, tragically, unfortunately, was too far ahead of its time. His ideas wouldn't be broadly accepted for decades, despite the fact that he he published a paper um, in 1849. He published a paper uh, on the mode of communication of cholera, right? And then backed it up. uh, He backed up uh, this this paper with his researches in 1854 with the, uh, with the, the, the cholera outbreak. But all of his work was was largely ignored for a long time. It was, uh, you know, it's it's a great shame. Um, his ideas 
they didn't find traction for for decades. So so pull one out for for John Snow, a man whose ideas found the world unready for them. This poor bastard. Although today, happily, you can go to Broadwick Street in London and and see the uh, the John Snow Memorial water pump, which to this day still is missing its handle. Anyway. By the time we get to 1858, the situation is worse than ever before, and the city is really suffering for it. People are sick and dying of cholera. The streets, they stink to high heaven, and something had to be done. And by the time we get to the summer of 1858, whoo boy. I mean, it was a hot one. Even by my standards as an Australian, it was a hot one. I mean, never mind these bloody, these wimpy Englishmen and Englishwomen who these days, you know, pop shorts on as soon as it hits 20. It got as hot as 48 degrees in London that summer. Uh, and most days, even in the shade, it was above 30, which is roasting hot for, for Britain, you know, which is usually in the middle of, uh, you know, it, go, it goes from grey and cloudy and rainy to grey and cloudy and slightly less rainy most summers. But uh, as I say, the summer of 1858, an absolutely ridiculous one. It was it, it was hot. And, and the other thing was it was dry. To make things worse, the usual, uh, you know, interminable British rain, it had disappeared. And so the weather, unbelievably hot, unbelievably dry. And as the heat continued, you know, unabated by the complete lack of rain here, guess what happened? The Thames, as I said before, it started to dry up. Its banks withdrew. And as its banks withdrew, uh, they pulled away from the sewerage outfalls that deposited, you know, all the, the growlers that people had punched out, meaning that rather than ending up in the river, this effluent started to build up on what were now the dry, exposed banks. And it was... By all accounts, absolutely, unbelievably disgusting. The stench was overpowering. It made it impossible to spend any time anywhere near the river because they've just got great big piles of soggy turds that are being flopped out of these on uh, out of these outfalls onto the onto what was before a river, but is now just a pile of mud. Um, and, uh, and and being even, you know, I mean, forget about downwind, but like any even close, anywhere near the river was just one of the most punishing olfactory sensations that you could possibly imagine. In fact, at one point during the summer, right, Queen Victoria, she attempted to take a pleasure cruise uh, on a boat on the river, but uh, she and her, her, her entourage, they had to turn around more or less as soon as they started because of how nauseatingly strong the stink of the river was. Not an ideal setting for a pleasure cruise, is it? You know, off down the bloody... I mean, you'd be better off on the River Unk, like this this morass that, you know, great big steaming heaps of turds on the bank smelling like a bloody high school toilet. Absolutely no good at all. This build-up of raw sewage on the banks of the river, it created an almost poisonous atmosphere for anyone, and everyone, really, who was anywhere near the river. And here's where things get interesting. Now, this might come off as a little cynical, but it isn't quite a coincidence in my mind, I don't think, that there is a certain building on the banks of the Thames in London, a certain building that that was and still is today, right, not only in extremely close proximity to, of course, the Thames, but also filled with the sorts of people that you would usually charge with fixing problems just like this one. The British Houses of Parliament, of course, sit on the banks of the Thames today, just as they did 150 years ago. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, you know, this sewerage problem, it had been a long-standing one within London, but of course all the worst of it, including all the cholera outbreaks and everything else, that mainly affected the poor. But all of a sudden, 
it is starting to affect those in the vaulted halls of power. In, in the summer of 1858, the noble and honourable members of the British Parliament are unable to conduct their stately business because Westminster is right on the banks of the putrid River Thames and the stench is unbearable. The parliamentarians, they couldn't or just wouldn't go into Parliament to legislate given how bad it smelled thanks to the, its you know, proximity to the, uh, to the river there. And uh, in an effort to try to to sort of forestall this or make the situation remotely workable for them, hundreds of tonnes of lime were dumped uh, into the Thames, you know, just just to try to make the, I'm talking like chalk lime, I mean, not like the fruit. I don't know how well that, the river didn't have scurvy, mate. So yes, no chalk lime, um, in order to sort of obfuscate the smell a little bit, uh, particularly in areas where the sewage buildup was the worst. And the curtains in the House of Parliament, they were soaked in lime chloride uh, to deal with the smell. And it was so bad. It was so bad. And so many MPs were just, you know, were so unwilling to come and, and work that there was even talk of moving the parliament away from London to, to St. Albans or, or Oxford just so they could actually sit there and legislate. Now, again, maybe this is just the cynic in me and maybe action would have been taken in any case. But the great stink, as the summer of 1858 became known, it resulted in the British parliament taking action finally to remedy the problem. Now, perhaps this would have happened anyway, even if it hadn't, you know, to so strongly affect the day-to-day lives of the parliamentarians, who knows? But it is very interesting that the poor and the downtrodden had had to deal with this for a very long time before real proper action was taken to fix the problem. The timing is, the timing is, uh, it's more than more than a coincidence as far as I'm concerned. Now that Parliament stinks, you know, rather than just some poverty-stricken neighbourhood who knows where, now that Parliament is being affected, things actually start to change. Whatever the reason, though, whether you want to be cynical about it or not, thanks to the Great Stink, a plan to revolutionise London's sewerage systems was finally put into action. The people in Parliament that had enough of bloody pegs on the noses and breathing through hankies, whatever else, and so they finally started to throw money at the problem. The putrid piles of these long-busted grumpies, they all added up. Their mephitic vapours finally took enough of a toll for people to decide that enough was enough. The press were loving it. They're publishing scathing articles, searing political cartoons, and generally just tearing strips off, off the government at every turn. And so finally, the slow and the ponderous machinery of government swung into action and things got underway. And look, I should say... It isn't quite fair to paint a picture of total inaction on the part of Victorian London to to deal with this problem. I mean, people outside of the government had, uh, and some within it, I I suppose, to be fair, uh, had been uh, doing some things in attempting to address, you know, this public health crisis there. And going back as far as 1848, and and, and a little further as well, there are other instances, but going back to um, uh, 1848, People had been attempting to do something about it, but they'd not really had the resources or the full government support that they needed uh, behind them to actually achieve their aims. And as I say, the, the Great Stink of 1858 changed that because money money was just poured into, well, I mean, poured into the sewers, I suppose, is the best way to put it, to try to fix them. And this now is where we meet the hero of the story of the Great Stink, a man whose name was Joseph Bazalgette. Ten years previously, in 1848, as I say, the Metropolitan Commission of Sewers had been established, and in 1849, it employed Bazalgette as an assistant surveyor. Now, but Joseph Bazalgette is is, probably a name that you haven't heard before. However, he is one of the unsung heroes of history, because this man would go on to single-handedly revolutionise the sewerage system in the City of London, saving 
countless lives as he did so, and very strongly influencing the development of urban infrastructure around the world. Throughout the 1850s, before the Great Stink, he worked as a surveyor for the Commission of Sewers, uh, which later became the Metropolitan Board of Works, or the MBW, in 1855. Now, prior to that, he'd worked as as an engineer for railway companies before moving into urban infrastructure, and he seemed to really have quite the head on his shoulders. Very clever bloke indeed. And while working for the Commission or or the Board of Works, he had been drawing up a plan to completely redevelop London's sewerage system. Uh, he had refined these plans over the years, refining and refining them, until he ultimately, ultimately completed them in 1856. The problem was, in 1856 at least, these plans were ambitious, they were expansive, but more importantly, they were expensive, which is why they had never been put into action before this. But now, with the British government finally ready to uh, you know, open up the old pocketbook, the funds were finally forthcoming, Uh, And this grand plan could be put into action. And it really was a grand plan. Check this out. Basil Jett planned to build what would be essentially two separate sewerage systems, one north of the Thames and one south of the Thames. And these systems would connect the entire city to two centralised systems, one north, one south, and drain the sewerage eastward from all parts of the city to river outfalls downstream, downstream in the Thames, away from the city itself. These outfalls were going to be far enough east so as not to affect people living in the city, and the waste dumps there would be timed so so as they could be uh, carried off when the high tide came in and out, right? Now, this plan was Herculean, or Heracles, I guess we should we say Heraclean? I don't know why the Romans got the final say on Heracles' name, really. Anyway, this Heraclean plan it posed some very significant construction and engineering challenges. Firstly, it involved almost 2,000 kilometres of new, of new sewerage, 1,800 of it uh, in the form of small street sewers that they'd need to be dug throughout the entire city. And these small street sewers would then connect to 130 kilometres of main sewerage that would take everything to the eastern outfall. So if you think about the sort of hodgepodge, you know, cesspit, natural water course, dumping waste, wherever you could, way that uh, Victorian London had dealt with waste up until this point, this is revolutionary. This is now digging individual street sewers to connect everything to one single centralised system, or two, I suppose, depending on which side of the river you're on there. Uh, designed uh, effectively to, uh, again, centralise, streamline the entire uh, waste disposal procedure rather than just flushing it into the river somewhere, you know? So this really, really was revolutionary. But that in and of itself, right, despite that, I mean, that by itself is a massive undertaking, but it was made even more challenging, of course, by the fact that London, like so many other places on Earth, isn't perfectly flat. There are hills throughout London, of course, and you know it's not them that there was the problem, really. It was, it was actually the areas that were below the waterline that was an issue. But the topography, topography of London meant that you couldn't just dig all the sewers and let gravity slowly but surely drift everything eastward. That wasn't going to work. For some, of the, for, some, you know, for some of the sewage to actually be effective, sewage would have to be pumped back above the waterline in these low-lying areas to let gravity to continue to drain it out further east. So this was, as I say, a massive undertaking. It really was an enormous project. Heraclean, Heraclean, a Welch. I mean, Heracles was doing a bit of bloody, well, it's not quite sewer work. He was doing a bit of waste disposal, wasn't he? With cleaning out them stables. So it's a very, very well-chosen adjective here. But uh, despite its its ambition and despite the, the enormous cost involved in completing it, the plan 
was nonetheless approved. In the wake of the Great Stink, the Parliament was very, very keen to get something going, and the MBW was charged with enacting Bazalgette's plan, and it was given three million pounds in order to do so. In today's money, that is well into the hundreds of millions of pounds. A conservative estimate, about three hundred million pounds, but it could even go higher towards the billions of pounds, depending on how you estimate it. This three million was made up by a 40-year three-penny tax on all London households, which is, you know, fair enough. They're the ones who are going to be benefiting from it. And Bazalgette was the bloke who ultimately was put in charge of actually enacting happily the plan that he had worked so hard to bring to fruition. And it's very lucky that he was the bloke who was uh, who headed up the entire project. I'll tell you this because he showed enormous wisdom, enormous foresight, and enormous presence of mind with his plans and their execution too. He knew that he was building something that needed to last, and he wanted to get it right. He'd worked in this plan for years, as I mentioned, but what was truly remarkable about these plans was the way that he used them to prepare for an unknown future. And nowhere is this more obvious than when it comes to the diameter of the pipes that he settled on. He made a, he made a range of far-reaching decisions that, that sort of struck out into the future and, and, and what maybe couldn't be foreseen, right, just to be on the safe side. And I think this the story I'm going to tell you about the pipes, the diameter of the pipes, really encapsulates that, his attitude towards, you know, the, 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 it's very much the, the woodworker's adage of, of uh, measure twice, cut once, you know, and this is, this is very much what he was doing uh, with his sewage system. Check this out here, the, the story about the pipes. Bazalgette, he did his calculations. He figured out how big these pipes would need to be, right? Taking into consideration uh, population density, of course, and the um, the uh, production of uh, of what the sewers would ultimately uh, be used to carry off. I suppose is the diplomatic way of putting it. Now. Once he had figured out the densest possible population of the City of London and imagined them all just squirting like country geese every day of the week, he figured out how how wide the pipes would need to be. So basically he sat down, he crunched the numbers, he's gone, right, this is how many people, right? This is how many people can fit in the city. This is how many growlers they can punch out a day, right? So here's how big the pipes need to be. Great, excellent, he sorted out. And then he took that number and he doubled it. He made the pipes twice as big as they needed to be just in case. He's quoted as saying, when defending this decision, he is quoted as saying, well, we're only going to do this once, and there's always the unforeseen. And for that reason, you know, and, and, and you know, in, in, in making his pipes uh, way, way bigger than was necessary back in the 1850s, the sewerage system that he built so all those years ago, you know, a century and a half ago, he couldn't have possibly imagined the population density and the pure volume of turds that would be pinched off thanks to people living today in skyscrapers, in tower blocks. But his readiness to incorporate the unknown future into his calculations, it paid enormous dividends 150 years later, as we'll discover. This bloke truly had incredible foresight. He really did think it through and plan out for an unknown future that he himself couldn't conceptualize, but still wanted to be ready for. This bloke was very, very cluey indeed. Anyway, back in the 1850s, work gets underway towards the end of it. Uh, the very next year after the, the Great Stink, actually in 1859. And I'll tell you what, 
people were bloody keen on the project. Public works projects and uh, urban infrastructure, obviously, it, it, these days doesn't get doesn't get people all that excited. Uh, but back then, whoo, unbelievable. The papers they're loving Basil Jet. They you know, get around him, bloody legend. Off he goes. What a ripper of bloke he is, mate. And the the press portrayed all the people, you know, the, all the all the construction works, whatever else, all the engineers working on the sewage project as heroes, just straight up. I mean, the public opinion was well behind them as they worked. They're ripping up streets and digging stuff out, and people there, bloody, you know, applauding them, telling, them, oh, good on you, mate, get in there, bloody, get in there with a the shovel. Bloody, you know, probably not literally that. They're not stand. It's not like the bloody Tour de France where they're standing there clapping them as they go past with their shovels, but still, you can imagine that. Uh, my point is here: people were very happy that this, you know, sewage situation was getting was getting. Uh, dealt with. You you understand that. And, and this is just as well. It's good that people were behind it for a couple of reasons. Not only are the workmen, as I say, going around ripping up streets, which is bound to be a bother for some people, at least they're, they're behind it, creating a stink, whatever else. The whole project, of course, I mean, it ran so far over budget, you wouldn't believe it. In 1863, another $1.2 was given over to it. So almost, again, you know, 50% of the original budget was uh, a massive increase there. But people got behind it. The government supported it. The press supported it, and, and broadly speaking, the people of London supported, it despite the the raise and uh, despite the, the the raise taxes and whatever else, because this problem just needed to be fixed. And so Basil Jet and and the people that were working for him were, were hailed as heroes, as I say. And for the most part, the project for, for a, a massive uh, you know public work uh, public works project like this, it was undertaken pretty smoothly, despite running over budget. But you know, a government contract. I mean, what do you expect? I'm sorry, I guess. I'm sorry to say that there just aren't too many thrills and spills to report. I mean, I'd, you know, I'd love a sewer-related disaster or two to share with you. I'd love a, I'd love a hilarious story um, about, I don't know, Joseph uh, Bazalgette himself digging out a sewer and slipping and landing headfirst in a pile of turds or whatever else, but uh, nothing like that happened. Or, or if it did, it was very well covered up because Bazalgette, he was not only a gifted engineer, but also a very able project manager, it turns out. He, uh, he was very personally invested in this project, and he, he, worked, uh, he, worked himself, he worked himself ragged, really, just with his, uh, his personal uh, oversight and, and, I mean, perhaps micromanagement of many things. You know, he did have a hand in, in, in more or less every single part of the project's execution. But it's just as well, because he really did seem to have his head screwed on, and uh, and and the project's success owed a lot of it to his diligence and and uh, and you know not only his foresight, but again just his tenacity and uh, and and his wisdom there. Uh, look, a few things did go wrong. Of course, it wasn't ever going to be absolutely perfect. You know, we'll get across them. But uh, for the most part, this story it bucks the half-assed history trend. As from, I mean, it it I I've got to say, things only got better from here. As I mentioned, construction had started in 1859, these two separate sewage systems being worked on, one north and one south of the river. Southern system, relatively straightforward. The south side of London was less populous and the terrain was a little more favourable. On the north side, however, a large population combined with railway lines, canals and choke city streets did make work a little bit harder. There was a labour dispute early on in the project and then there was some tricky weather to get through as well. At one point, heavy frosts slowed down work enormously and then, uh, you know, the the typically garbage British weather kicked back in and uh, some great deluges of rain also held up work. Uh, in fact, during one such rainy period, uh, there was a bit of a disaster. One of the sewers that was being dug uh, parallel to the digging of an underground line, the Metropolitan Line at Clerkenwell, uh, the, uh, thanks to the rain, the 2.5-metre wall that separated the two trenches actually collapsed and flooded the entire area, did a lot of damage to both construction uh, projects, knocked out a, a gas main as well. Uh, so, I mean, that's 
I mean, but that is kind of more or less it, as I say. That's more or less it when it comes to thrills and spills. I'd, I'd love to tell you some other story, you know, about, I don't know, a sewer pipe exploding and, and, and covering a an entire street with, with, with liquid turds. But, uh, I mean, it just, just didn't happen, unfortunately. You know, no one was falling headfirst into piles of ordure or anything. So, um, you know, Basil, Basiljet was, by all accounts, nothing less than a completely competent um, uh, leader, and, and by by you know by many more accounts, he was a he was a great deal more than that. His project was expensive, it was time consuming, but it was an enormous success, and it led to a bunch of very positive consequences for London's public health. We'll talk about the public health stuff in a minute, but before we do, I want to talk about another area uh, where some surprising developments were made uh, in architecture, less significant perhaps than the than the public health breakthroughs, but certainly very interesting. I said before. That due to London's terrain, due to its topography, uh, pumps would have to be built. Uh, they'd be required uh, to lift sewage from the lower laying areas of the city, those particularly below the waterline. Um, now, Basiljet's plan, right, it relied on uh, on pumping houses to be built, right? Two large pumping houses built, one north, one south of the, of the river. Um, and you're not going to believe this. But these pumping stations, right, built, I mean, let's not forget, these pumping stations were built, once again, to speed wee-wee and poo-poo on its way. They are absolutely stunning pieces of architecture. On the north side, the, the Abbey Mills pumping station, it was built in the, in the Italian Gothic style, and it, it looks more like a country manor. It still stands today. You can, go, you can go on the internet, see pictures of it. Although its enormous chimneys were removed during the Second World War, so the Nazis couldn't use them to, to navigate or, or perhaps knock them over with bombs to destroy the station outright. On the south side, however, the, uh, the Crossness pumping station, it's, it's equally as remarkable. From the outside, it's a, a little less impressive, to be sure, uh, built in the Romanesque, uh, Romanesque style. But inside, oh my goodness, it is filled with beautiful wrought iron, it looks more like an, an old bank or a hotel or something like that. Not a you know not a pumping station for for effluent. The Crossness pumping station, it really I mean go and go and look at pictures of it online because it really is it's it's an incredibly beautiful uh, uh, building and and you know it it was when it was completed in in 1865 it was officially opened by the Prince of Wales who would go go on to become King Edward VII. It was a, a huge affair. There were there were parliamentarians there, other royalty, London's Lord Mayor, even the Archbishops of Canterbury and York. It was a very big deal. I mean, it might sound silly today, but opening this pump and, pumping station and, and the sewer that went with it was a, as I say, a very big deal back then. Um, Basiljet and his associate, um, Charles Driver, the, the bloke who built or, or designed at least this Crossness pumping station, they, sh- they, they, I mean, this is what I find significant and, and, and interesting to talk about when it comes to these buildings, because these two, they showed us that, that, uh, that aesthetics, that, that beauty is still important. It's still possible, even when seeking to, well, I mean, you know, when seeking to transport human sh- as quickly as an efficient and, and as efficiently as possible. Anyway. Um, additionally, and uh, and this will be of interest to to anyone who has actually been to London and, and visited the embankment on the side of the river, uh, of the River Thames, Basiljet also built something else that was quite remarkable while undertaking his sewer project. Basiljet he built a series of enormously long embankments beside the northern edge of the river on the northern bank of the river, so as to transport sewage along the river without actually you know, using the river itself. He he laid pipe, no, not, 
Not that kind of pipe laying, mate. Thank you very much, please. Come on. Um, he laid pipe along, <laughs> along the river, and then he buried it under the embankment itself, reclaiming some of the river as he did so. So rather than all of these outfalls just dumping the effluent into the river itself, they all fed into this pipe that ran parallel to the river, keeping this waste, these, you know, this, this terrible, smelly, horrific, unhealthful uh, waste out of the waterway itself and just instead running it along the uh, along the bank of the river there uh, and then the pipe was then covered over and and created uh, created these embankments and these embankments right the embankment projects ended up having far-reaching consequences because not only did the embankment provide a much much healthier and much more sustainable way to transport uh, transport effluent it also expanded the city into the river. As I say, it reclaimed some of this area that used to be part of the Thames. And by increasing the surface volume of London, this reduced traffic and congestion within the centre of the city. Bazalgette quite literally changed the lay of the land with his embankment project. And it, in addition to the rest of the, uh, the sewer uh, project, was such a tremendous success that in 1874, he was knighted for his efforts. And and recognised most 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 worthily too, for his uh, for his for his incredible achievements here. Now I know we all love a disaster story here on Half Us History, and I'm very sorry that this episode isn't filled with all manner of poo-related mishaps. I mean, you know, you know that I would have loved to bring you stuff like that. But the long and the short of it is that in the wake of the Great Stink, after the politicians in Westminster finally took action to address the malodorous state that London was in. Joseph Bazalgette absolutely outdid himself. In 1866, while parts of the sewer were still under construction, there was another cholera outbreak. But check this out. It was confined to a part of the city that hadn't yet been connected to Bazalgette's sewer system. And further, it helped the case that Jon Snow had made over a decade ago. The area that was affected, it took its water from a reservoir that was 800 metres upstream from a sewage outfall, and it was discovered that when the tide came in, it pushed the effluent back upstream right into the reservoir reservoir that people then drank from. This cholera outbreak in 1866 finally convinced people that the disease was waterborne, and it sped on medical advancements in combating combating the disease very, very effectively. In fact, it was the very last cholera outbreak in London altogether. As once Bazalgette's sewer system was completed in 1875, the disease never again reared its head in the city. It is impossible to count the number of lives that Bazalgette saved, not to me- I mean, not to mention nearly improved, merely just improved, as his remarkable plan to manage the, uh, the human waste of, of what was essentially the largest city on earth was a huge success. And not only this, he helped to speed on medical discovery, medical development, and and underpinned the research done by people like Jon Snow and later on people like Ignaz Semmelweis in the transmission of diseases like this. He didn't single-handedly solve any of the problems uh, that, that the medical world was facing, but he helped them so very much by providing real, actual, factual proof as to how these horrific diseases actually operated. Bazalgette is, as I said before, an unsung hero of history. He was said by historian John Doxat to have 
saved more lives than any single Victorian official. And it wasn't just life expectancy that improved, but also quality of life. Within two decades of the Great Stink, Bazalgette's sewers had transformed London and allowed it to keep pace with the continuing influx of new inhabitants. I mentioned before how Bazalgette had doubled the diameter of his pipes, just in case. And his decision to do that means that even today, his infrastructure still services London. 150 years later, his sewerage system is still in place. It's been built upon, of course. It's been expanded. For instance, uh, the old pumping stations are no longer in use. They've been replaced with more modern ones. But still, much of the original system is still doing its work. And it's only in the last decade, decade that the system is really starting to have a bit of an issue with just how big London has become in the 21st century. This is a monumental achievement for a civil engineer that lived in the 1850s to have foreseen or at least made allowances for the the enormous growth of London as a city and the population that, that flocks to it even to this day and, and set up a sewerage system that would be equipped to deal with it you know, over a century later. Bazalgette truly, truly was, uh, was a man who, with, with ideas that, that were well ahead of his time. It wasn't glorious. It wasn't distinguished. It wasn't illustrious work. But the achievements of Joseph, Joseph Bazalgette in the wake of the Great Stink not only saved countless lives, but they helped to further our understanding of the world and its threats to human life with infectious diseases like cholera. What started as the Great Stink, an event that saw you know great big horrible piles of long-busted grumpies laying around in the hot sun, it ended with one of the most remarkable feats of civil engineering that one of the biggest cities in the world, both then and now, still benefits from today. Joseph Bazalgette is, in my mind at least, a true hero of history, a visionary who worked tirelessly to make his city a safer place to live. And as a result, as our understanding of of infectious diseases like cholera and the way that they can be transmitted and and the prevention of these transmissions uh, developed further and further, he made the world a safer place for us all to inhabit. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is a story of the great stink and also the story of Joseph Bazalgette, who, again, as I say, an unsung hero, a, a visionary of, uh, of history and someone whose name I'm, I'm very glad to be able to, uh, to, to share a little bit with people who may be interested to find out, uh, to find out about his, uh, his incredible work. Anyway, that is that for another week of Half of Past History. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, all the, the boring, normal housekeeping stuff coming your way right now. Halfhousehistory.net. Uh, a little bit of merch left over if you want it. Patreon.com slash History if you want to support the show. Contact form on the website if you want to get in touch. And, of course, be sure to go and leave a review on iTunes if you've got a second. Um, algorithmically, it is very beneficial for me, I've been told, by people who know about this sort of thing. So I certainly appreciate all the people who go and, uh, and chuck me reviews. Um, and, of course, a very big thank you to all the Patreon supporters, uh, in particular some new executive producers who uh, – there's been a bit of a delay in, in getting their business cards. And, of course, I've got a very good reason for that. I – Forgot, sorry. Um, but the, the business cards are winging their way to a new batch of executive producers. So thank you to the people who are supporting the show financially via Patreon. If you want to join their exalted ranks, of course, you can. Patreon.com slash History. And thank you to you, the listener, for, uh, for tuning into the show week in, week out, and sharing it with your friends, your enemies, and, of course, the people about whom you feel largely ambivalent. We're going to close the show with a question posed on Reddit. Uh, this, I believe, is a question for all the physics nerds out there. I don't really understand it, but it looks like it might be funny if you're the right flavor of nerd. So buckle up, 
physics nerd. Is it physics? I don't know if it's physics or chemistry or I don't know if it's bloody mathematology. I don't know what it is, but just enjoy this, you, you stupid bloody nerd. Here we go. This one comes to us from uh, Reddit user Shredderit, who asks, if someone were to split London into several parts, would there be strong London dispersion forces acting upon them? 